Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Welcome to the second season of The Transatlanticist. In the first season, we had some terrific guests discussing a wide variety of topics relating to American politics and culture. We discussed Henry David Thoreau's concept of civil disobedience, the midterm elections, Donald Trump's economic policies, eco-criticism, basketball, immigration, Brexit, and a host of other important issues affecting the transatlantic relationship, as well as President Trump's first year in the White House. Indeed, it is hard to believe that we are already past the second year of Trump's first presidential term. And now, after two years has passed, I believe enough time has passed for scholars and academics to start reflecting more seriously and critically on Barack Obama's legacy. So much has already been written about the Obamas, and much more will come. Indeed, presidential historians are just beginning to work their way through the tens of millions of pages of White House documents from his presidency. Of course, President Obama was the first black president, and Michelle Obama was the first African-American first lady. However, the Obama presidency was unique in countless other ways, both politically and culturally. Indeed, the Obamas were and are not merely a political force, they are a cultural force. And they do come as a pair, Barack and Michelle. So our subject today is to look at the Obamas as a fascinating part of American culture. How did the Obamas construct their identity within the framework of American identity politics? How did Michelle specifically construct her role as the First Lady of the United States, or as she sometimes called herself, Mom-in-Chief? And what does Michelle's new book tell us about American culture, politics, and identity construction? Here with me today to help us unpack the importance of the Obama presidency, FLOTUS studies, and Michelle Obama's new book is a fantastic American studies scholar, Stephanie Schaefer. Welcome, Dr. Schaefer. Hello. It's great to be here. Dr. Schaefer is Visiting Professor of American Studies with a focus on culture at Friedrich Alexander Universität Erlangen-Nürnberg. She holds an MA from Trier University, a PhD in English from the University of Heidelberg, and received a Venia Legendi from the University of Jena in 2017. Her research interests are located at the intersection between politics, gender, and visual culture in the U.S. and Canada. She just recently edited a special issue on Black womanhood in popular culture and is preparing the publication of her second book, or Habilitation, called Yankee Yarns, which offers the first study of the history of the Yankee as national allegory of the United States. Stephanie has been a visiting scholar at the Library of Congress and the recipient of a DAAD postdoctoral fellowship, 
And these days she is working on Cowgirls and The Western Show, and I am happy to announce has just received a two-year Marie Curie Fellowship from the European Union for this project. Let's start with a little bit of general background first. Could you walk me through the discipline of American studies and the role of the first family in American culture in general? The interesting thing about the American presidency and as a, specifically as a subject of American studies is that it is located at the heart of politics and culture and that it offers various vistas from different viewpoints and interdisciplinary viewpoints. So you can look at it through history, through politics, but also through literature and cultural production. And when I started um, looking at this, what I found intriguing from the very beginning is the presence of civil religion at the heart uh, of American politics. Can you just explain that term? Because I've heard it before. I've never quite understood what is meant from a scholarly perspective by civil religion. It's a term coined by Robert Bella at the height of the um, Cold War. And it talks about the fact that at the founding, breaking away from Europe and from monarchies and from monarchies steeply steeped in religious loyalties, the United States uh, was founded as a republic and supposedly um, had to invent its own iconographies and its cultural authority. And throughout the 19th century, you have the struggle in American history and culture with being independent from Europe, being non-royal or non-political in this sense, and inventing your own stuff. Throughout the 19th century, you have uh, an attempt to find a culturally independent identity that is not European, but European enough to gain recognition from Britain, the colonial mother country, and from continental Europe. So some scholars say that the US from the beginning has been a European fantasy. Now, the thing with the presidency is that the president is installed in the architecture of Washington, D.C. in the White House. We know that uh, Washington, D.C. was supposed to be the capital of the United States, and it was built as such. So there's no political growth before that, as we have with European capitals that used to be often mercantile centers. In Washington, D.C., the highest building height-wise is the capital where Congress is located. The White House uh, is the seat and the home, presumably, of the president. And the specialty about this is that downstairs you have the offices and upstairs is where the first family is supposed to live. So from early on, you have a conflation of politic political culture and the life story or the life dwellings of the most powerful person. Now, after the founding of the U.S., there was haste to ratify the Constitution. And there were lots of documents and people trying to get this ratified and, you know, peddling it to um, the citizens who would have to vote for it to become uh, law. In the Federalist Papers um, in the 1780s and 90s, there was early talk about what this Constitution should look like. And the writers of the Federalist Papers, who, who remained anonymous, wrote in public newspapers about a strong leading figure, imagining the later president. It's interesting to see how they wrote about this person, because they imagined it, of course, modeled on 
the Revolutionary War general, General Washington. But they also said it would have to be an energetic leader, a strong leader, good at husbanding. And the husbanding is what got me intrigued in this, because it also not only means that you are um, in control of your own household, it also means that you are a husband. Mm -hmm. And so from the very beginning, in ratifying the Constitution, the image of the highest power in the state was one that was intricately linked to a masculine figure, of course, as we know today, a white figure, and somebody who would be a paterfamilias. And Washington, throughout these campaigns, in the after the founding in the early republic, did a very good job at going around being a popular icon and posing as a mixture between warrior, virtuous hero, and husband or runner of an estate. And that's how the logic of the president in the White House as the paterfamilias of the nation came to pass. And that's how we came to the institution of Flotus, mm -hmm. the first lady of the United States. And going back to the European connection, so a, a concept of an executive where a leader needed to be constructed, it couldn't be imperial or monarchical. So by nature, an analog had to be created that arose from traditional monarchical models, but it had to be stripped of any imperial or monarchical trappings. Yes, the important view of this was to have somebody who would be virtuous, who, of course, would also be a part of the colonial elite. So this couldn't be anybody who just popped up and somebody who's well connected. And Washington was very well connected, not least through his wife, Martha Washington, who came to be known as Lady Washington for whatever reason, because she was not uh, part, she, she had no ladyship title in any way, but she was talked about at Lady, as Lady Washington. And importantly, she was great at entertaining. So she would entertain and she would do the social parts and her husband would be doing the cultural parts. And that's how I think we still uh, today conceive of uh, the first couple or the president as a husband, presumably also a father uh, of his own children, but also by implication of the nation who live at the White House. So once they are elected, uh, the, for the president and first lady become what we can call with the logic of the civil religion, the highest priests of the nation. They are invested with a almost magical mythological power, a replacement of what we have in Europe as the cult of monarchy and monarchy couldn't be done. So we, we needed some, uh, something else. And in the cult of civil religion with this couple living in the White House, ruling the nation from Washington, presumably there is this source of identification with the nation state. Fascinating. So let's jump from the first president, General Washington, to president number 44, Barack Obama. How do you think American studies scholars look at Obama and his role in this long history of the first couple fitting into this civil religion concept? Do you think Obama's presidency radically changed that paradigm or changed it a little bit? As you said in the opening, it is a little early to define things once and for all. But there's a trend in uh, viewing the Obama presidency towards in a turn towards a transnational American presidency or a transnational understanding of the US in American studies. The trend being that Obama has positioned himself in his writings and in his comments on his own life story and on his career and his two autobiographical texts 
in an international setting. So he was born in Hawaii. He spent a lot of his youth in Indonesia. And he wrote his first autobiography, Dreams for My Father, about his return or his voyage to Africa, to Kenya, to find the family of his father. So he has done a lot to position himself and his administration also beyond the direct intense elites of the nation state and looking uh, towards the future. Uh, one example would be his politics to locate American interests in the Pacific. Interestingly enough, what we find is also a comparison of the Obamas with the Kennedys. So some commentators say that while the Kennedys uh, represented the U.S. in the Cold War, including their family ties and their uh, family members, The Obama family extended clan around the globe represents this transnational reconception of the U.S. as deeply entangled in international relations and transnational flows. Mm -hmm. So that would be one way of viewing uh, the Obama presidency. Another way, of course, is viewing it through the paragon of race and race relations in the U.S. And interestingly enough... Um, Very early after the election of uh, President Obama as first black president, there was talk about the arrival of a post-racial society and a post-racial system. I'm not even sure what that means. What did it mean at the time? It meant that commentators were so happy about the election of a black man to a office that was configured as white that... They thought this is the end to all race problems. It was a euphoria that, you know, was very quickly quelled mm -hmm. um, by other commentators. And looking at the Obama presidency's record, I think we have to negotiate on the one hand the positioning that uh, the Obamas themselves did uh, in this relation, and on the other hand, the developments that they were faced with. So some important points of the Obama presidency regarding race uh, were the rise of police brutality towards black people. And the moment when uh, President Obama said, I could have been Trev Trayvon Martin. So when he described himself as potential victim to police brutality. Another important moment was the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act in 2014, which the Obamas celebrated and were very outspoken about. Uh, they also retook the march uh, from Selma to Washington, historic march in the South, to commemorate this. So they have been outspoken about the successes of the civil rights movement, but they've also been critical of the state of race relations in the U.S. And no one, I think, still would say that we have arrived in a post-racial America. Indeed, it was a euphoria after the election. Um, I just do think that somehow we have moved forward a little bit, at least. And I don't even know how we've moved forward, but it's just it, it, the conversation is different now. Because we're, now we're talking about uh, the Obama presidency in the past tense, when beforehand we could never even talk about a black president in the future tense, except as some dream. And then it was eight years. It was a long time having this. So... Still, to me, um, I guess what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is that something did change with the Obama presidency about race in America. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> 
And that's where American <laughs> studies scholars need to enlighten me. I think what is interesting is to see how both Obamas used the office of the presidency and the symbolic power it is vested with to construct public personas. Barack Obama did this with talking a lot about being a father, supporting his two daughters, and uh, asking a lot from his wife because he was on the road so much and she had to take care of her daughters. He also talked a lot about uh, the importance of education and how it was important to him that he, both he and his wife could have a career. So with that, he kind of reacted to stereotypes about black uh, masculinity and black fatherhood. On the other hand, uh, Michelle Obama herself has commented extensively on the difficulties of negotiating her job with family duties and giving up her job and uh, starting to be a full-time first lady. And that's what we're gonna, what we're gonna talk about in a second when we talk about becoming. But what I find most intriguing about the cultural work, if we can call it that, that the Obamas do is that they did stage a partnership. And they did talk about the importance of a partnership and a strong marriage, while also acknowledging that marriage can be difficult at times. And in that, they reframed the presidency and made visible even more the fact that before, we viewed the president as husband and man in power, with the first lady as decoration, invested with pillow power, so she can maybe talk to him at night, but who was supposed to be an ornament, maybe an entertainer. But as we've seen, not least with Michelle Obama, but also with other first ladies like Eleanor Roosevelt or Jackie Kennedy, the first lady has the potential of being an influencer. There's a potential in this role. She's not elected. There's no constitutional rule written for her. There's no rules, really. There are only social expectations and potentials, which surface when she flaunts them. Mm -hmm. So not moving into the White House is kind of flaunting an expectation. Misbehaving in any kind of way that is unfeminine or not conform to the expectations of female behavior at any given time would also be flaunting the rules. But following those implicit rules, there is a potential for the first lady persona to become what we might call an influencer or somebody who has a say in politics without being elected. Obviously, her critics said she went outside of the bounds of her appropriate role, but um, they probably never thought she was appropriately in the role in the first place. I think the thing with Michelle Obama is that she did it much better than Hillary Clinton did. So the Clintons ran on um, a slogan that said, you get two for the price of one. And this was all okay. Um, and Hillary Clinton was a second wave feminist and was outspoken about her politics, which were, of course, provocative for the male establishment and still are. But when she started a healthcare reform from inside her offices inside the White House, that was a problem. She, she was shut down even from inside the Democratic Party because the first lady is not supposed to make politics. And what we see with Michelle Obama, she's also in politics, only it's not politics. <laughs> it's celebrity politics. Mm -hmm. She's very influential. She has become uh, what some commentators have called a global super celebrity. She's known around the world. And people also know what she stands for. And her book is kind of a trademark or benchmark for that. Well, we're going to talk about the book yeah. soon. 
but we're not even quite through the general introduction. And so I just want to pause a little bit and talk generally about FLOTUS or First Lady of the United States Studies. Do we call this a discipline yet? Um, is it a subdiscipline of American culture studies? Where, where, what is the state of the discipline now? As of now, FLOTUS is not a distinct field of studies. My own interest would be to start a discipline of critical first lady studies. And I came to this uh, when I discovered that there is such a thing as presidential studies in political studies in the U.S., so presidential studies are very much done and um, they are carried out. There are institutions, there are chairs for teaching, uh, there are research uh, funding and money that puts that is put into it, this. And we also have the institution of presidential libraries, which collect all the documents, uh, supposedly at the home where the respective presidents come from. So there's a lot of money and a lot of prestige in that. And there's very little attention being paid to Flodus. And this is, of course, because she's not elected, as I said before. But if you see what cultural work first ladies have done and how they put the presidency on a pedestal by means of being the wife and the arm candy or maybe the, the woman that makes the man, I think it's important to look at ideals of American womanhood at First Lady performances and personas and to assess the cultural products around them. So there's a host of cultural products around Eleanor Roosevelt, novels, biographies, films. The same thing is true for Jackie Kennedy. And I think we see the same thing happening already a little bit for uh, Michelle Obama. And my interest is not so much in historical truths because we can never unearth the real person behind the persona. My interest is, is in performances, receptions, and the norms that are peddled through these cultural productions. Why do some conservative commentators feel compelled to talk about body shapes with a black woman? Why don't they talk about body shapes with white women? What is the status of women in this political economy? Can they go beyond being a pretty face? And as, we, as we've seen with the election of a record number of women to Congress this fall, I think it's high time that we look at the supposedly highest office that a woman can politically have in the U.S., also to prepare, maybe, and pave the ground for a first female president. And again, looking at the massive scope of this discipline, or what it could be, obviously we can start charting the, the representations of womanhood in the U.S. seen through the lens of the First Lady going back to Martha Washington. And that would yield some very interesting concepts about how uh, conceptions of women have evolved o over the centuries. Interestingly, the titles that have been coming out, and there's recent studies, historical studies, that start looking at this more in depth, read various First Ladies together. They often read them through a lens that doesn't talk so much about their husband's politics. And I think this is what we need to take into account. So Jackie Kennedy is said to have blazed trails for JFK on his uh, international journeys. Michelle Obama, I think, is doing a similar thing. Hillary Clinton has talked about her husband's politics as well. So they are loudspeakers, cultural diplomacists, diplomats, and potential politicians themselves. 
And a lot of di diplomacy happens through personal relations. And indeed, Hillary, after all of those years, um, she probably would have been a very good foreign policy president only because she had, or the one reason that she had a massive Rolodex of contacts and personal relationships with nearly every leader in the world. The other interesting floatus, I think, is Eleanor Roosevelt, who has been called an elder stateswoman without ever having been elected. Mm -hmm. So she became an advisor to many of the presidents. Uh, and she also was the eyes and ears of her husband, who was confined to the wheelchair. So she would go and meet uh, with the people that he couldn't meet in person. So we've discussed uh, some specifics. I wanted to do generalities, but we've stuck, discussed some excellent specifics. The second big idea I wanted to discuss here was the concept of identity in American politics and American cultural history. And I know that's a ridiculously huge subject, and it's unfair to even ask this question, but I will do it anyway. So could you talk me through the importance of identity construction, generally speaking, in literary studies and American studies, and then talk about how identity politics and identity construction um, related to the Obama presidency. So again, if we go back to the founding of the US and the conception of who can be a citizen, with the Naturalization Act of 1790, citizens are defined as white, free males. And with the Republic in place, the need was for these citizens to come out and celebrate the Republic and affirm their belonging with this new state in the public. So that's the beginning of the rituals that we st still see enacted today. Independence Day celebrated once a year. President's Day is still a holiday in the US. Uh, and there's a commemoration culture that links to the nation state. So identity, <laughs> as fraud a term as it is, maybe can be reframed through political status as citizens or as those who are not citizens. Specifically with the Obamas, you see maybe what you could call identity politics, what I would call visual politics, enacted in various ways. If you look at Michelle Obama's official first lady portrait, it is shot downstairs at the residence. So it's not upstairs in the domestic sphere where the floaters should be by definition, but it's shot downstairs. And uh, we see her standing in front of uh, a portrait of Thomas Jefferson. And the visual politics of this image is intriguing because she has also talked about living in a house that was built by slaves. Michelle Obama herself has a history of slavery in her family with her oldest known descend, uh, oldest known predecessor. We know to be the son of a white plantation owner and his slave. So her standing uh, in her official portrait in the house that was built by slaves in front of the portrait of Thomas Jefferson, the writer of the Indi Declaration of Independence, but also a slave owner himself, displays this very fraught politics of visual iconographies and power in the US. The other component with identity is that From the beginning in the US, there's a preoccupation with the observed life, with autobiography, with looking at people's stories, with also telling the stories of those who made it, and maybe you can emulate it. I'm thinking of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, The 14 Points. He has a, a catalog of things. If you do them, he's, you know, 
he's implying if you follow his catalog you can make it like him and yeah, rise from uh from, is uh, is self-improvement literature a uniquely American invention? I think it might be, although they were doing this in, in Victorian Britain also. But it oh, might, Victorian it might be. Britain is, is, is predated by, um, by Franklin. Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. <laughs> what I find intriguing is that there's an obsession with the citizen subject and with supposedly a classless society in the U.S. Because it's not a monarchy, there's no implicit hierarchy, so you can be anything. This has also led to an imposter craze of confidence games and trickery that we see maybe with the present president in office, where it doesn't matter so much if you're telling the truth, if you're just only rubbing the system right and getting the most out of it, you are venerated for that. The flip side of this coin is, of course, that as a citizen, you're supposed to be virtuous, uh, upright, and still make a good fortune in life. And that's part of the Puritan model that, you know, is inherent in Benjamin Franklin's own writing. But getting back to this identity craze and what you talked about in the beginning, there is a an intense interest in life stories and in self-help literature. And the logic of the life stories goes like this. You tell your story from the beginning that you choose and you highlight the things that you choose, that you find important. So it's always told to a recipient, to somebody that you want to talk to and presumably that you want to either impress or just keep reading. And the logic of the um, biography or autobiography is always one of, I start telling the story and when I'm done, I kind of come to a conclusion. And presumably the reader can learn something from it or they can find new information or they can find out my own take on my real story. The premise of this is that my story is important and that is interesting and that it's worth telling. So with American autobiography as a genre that has been looked at in literary and cultural studies, there's always this interest in how American is it? Can it be American? Is it totally individualistic? What are the national paradigms and characteristics inscribed into the story and how is it exemplary or maybe how is it a warning against don't do the same thing as I did because I failed so autobiography in and of itself in the U.S. becomes a kind of self-help literature and there's a huge market for autobiographies they sell very well and the the other advantage of an of an autobiography, of course, is you can construct your own identity in public and choose which aspects of your identity you want to share. So there's a large measure of control that is going into this. Yes, that's and, what Hillary Clinton did with her many autobiographies. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe Michelle a little bit too, but we'll get to that mm -hmm. after our third major subject, which is specifically to discuss how American studies scholars believe Barack has changed identity politics in the U.S. The Obama presidency has been held to a very high standard, and people expect it a lot from the first black president. And it's clearly too early to say what has changed, but um, we said earlier that there were celebrations of the anniversaries of the first civil rights movement. Um, there was advertisement for the civil rights film, Hidden Figures, that was important. It was aired in the White House. There have been uh, black arts and artists exhibited and uh, invited to the White House. So there is a strengthening and an acknowledgement of, of the black arts. On the other hand, what Obama failed to do was deliver on many of his uh, campaign promises. He didn't close Guantanamo. 
he could not prevent massive police violence and brutality and shooting of unarmed black people. And during his presidency, we also saw the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is influenced by a school of black intellectual thought that's called Afro-pessimism. And that kind of constructs the opposite of Obama's hope creed. So Afro-pessimists, among them Frank Wilderson or Michelle Alexander, who wrote a book that's called The New Jim Crow, and she argues that mass incarceration is the continuation of segregation. So these intellectuals argue that there is a fundamental opposition between black people and humans. And in that logic, black people are already from the beginning socially and ontologically dead. You can't do anything if you're not recognized as a human person in a system that others you, puts you down and keeps you contained in so many ways. So if you follow the logic of Afro-pessimism, then Barack Obama cannot and did not achieve anything because he's a product of a white racist system that ever and ever persists. And what the Afro-pessimists call his hope creed is just another ideology to keep black people in their supposed spaces. That's a very interesting and difficult way of viewing the U.S., and I think it highlights how strong the opinions are on both sides, and it, it, it's a little bit scary even to hear you describe this. Yeah, the other point is that many people say that Obama made Trump possible. So now we've seen in the recent days um, commentators and allies of Trump come out and call him a racist, and we've seen an upsurge of racist um, organizations in Charlottesville in 2017, and there's some of the Afro-pessimists say that is because we had an African-American president before. What we have often seen in U.S. history is that you get a, do get a reaction between presidents. So a certain president is followed by almost somehow the opposite in the next figure. So Bush yielded Clinton. Clinton yielded another conservative in Bush, uh, which yielded a black president who is now going back to an old white man. So uh, some have argued also that because of this logic of contrast in electing presidents, there's no way another liberal Hillary or not would ever have been elected because the electorate just tends to go for the opposite after, especially after eight years of a presidential term. I, I see the point, but I think it might be flawed because you can also consider the continued policies that are handed down between different presidents. And there's a documentation that I'd like to recommend to the listeners of, to this podcast. It's called 13th by Ava DuVernay that traces the ballooning of the prison industrial complex in the Clinton administration. And that singles out how this worked. So it's not like Clinton stepped away from the Bush policies, but he carried them on. So... While it's true that we see extremes acting out in the political culture, when it comes to a policy level, it's not all yin and yang. It's not all pedaling back and forth. There's a continued trend. And at the end of the day, I think there's only so much that presidents can do when they're subjected to midterm elections. We've seen Obama turn into what they call a lame duck with the midterms of his second administration. 
I want to stick with the subject briefly of the mass incarceration of black people as an extension of Jim Crow in order to segue now into our fourth section of our talk today, which is about, indeed, Michelle's becoming. One potential failure of the Obama administration was that it seems like he didn't do much about mass incarceration of black people, and that might be on the Obamas, too. We'll use that to now move into uh, Michelle's Becoming, which she published in 2018, and it's already a global bestseller. Indeed, she is a world celebrity. I believe it sold 3 million copies in the first month, which is really good numbers. Go, Michelle. Michelle is a huge cultural force in her own right, separate from, although connected to, her husband. In order to prepare for the interview, I went to the bookstore to buy a copy, and I looked at the cover and I was immediately shocked because I didn't think that this book was intended for me, and if you haven't seen the cover, I will just describe it. Michelle is staring back at you, her hair is straight and wavy, and she has her right shoulder exposed from a low or a strangely cut white top t-shirt type thing. And she has a nice smile on her face. And to me, it looked like a women's fashion magazine. So I thought, oh my gosh, why am I buying this? So that probably says a lot about my own preconceptions that I should be embarrassed about. But I, I don't think so. I think there's a lot going on. Maybe this... you should. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I should, yes. I think there's a lot going on in this cover um, that I don't understand that only an American studies scholar and someone who's interested in image can explain to me. So what do you see when you look at this cover? I think it's interesting to start talking about what you don't see. You don't see a white man in a suit. You don't see the ideal of a man in power. You see a woman in power and a black woman at that. And surprisingly, she's dressed in a way, as you described it, with a shoulder showing that is sensuous and female at the same time. I wouldn't agree that this is not serious. I think it's the new serious. So it's the new kind of politics in an empowering way. I think that would be Michelle Obama's own politics and talking about the cover. What I see is a woman looking at me at eye level. And it seems that she's caught in a movement um, that she's just she just sat down and she might get up at any moment. I also see the first black first lady which has become a trademark by herself by now. So I don't really need an explanation. I'm, as we said before, if she is actually a global super celebrity, she's recognizable for herself by now. She doesn't need any other embellishments. And that's why the title, Becoming, is also simply put there along with her name. Michelle Obama has created a flotus persona that has negotiated between black womanhood and high-class fashion or high fashion. Uh, throughout her first ladyship, she has changed her dress from her previous corporate suit, she was a lawyer before, to what commentators have called a sassy or do-it-yourself or um, high-low kind of fashion, where she would, for instance, wear retailer's dresses and have them embellished by her personal stylist. She would also wear American designer's uh, that were unknown or uh, of diverse origins uh, to the state dinners. So she used the platform she had to advertise her own kind of fashion that said 
as commentators say, say, she had the power of style. She apparently did it so well that she was very dear to the fashion industry from even before the inauguration ball gown that she wore. So the cover of Becoming picks up on this and shows her as self-confident woman who doesn't have to dress in a suit to display her power. What does it say about me that that's how I originally read it? It's perfectly fine for you to criticize my uh, white manness. I think the clue here is that with the US specifically, we're looking at a case of celebrity politics where fashion, self-fashioning and public display is often conflated with the supposed what we think is the inner value of the person. So yes, it's marketed for women. It's marketed in a flashy style that is reminiscent uh, of fashion magazines. And yes, maybe it doesn't speak to the white male deliberately. Because that also means excluding a kind of audience and strengthening the audience that you really want. If I pack this into my bag along with the fashion magazines that I read regularly, and I'm not saying I read fashion magazines, I don't. Um, <laughs> but still, it speaks to a phenomenology of being female and powerful that uh, often resonates today. By contrast, uh, you could also speak about commentators' distrust or criticisms of women in power to be feminine at the same time. We talk about the weird dance moves of Theresa May. We talk about Angela Merkel's ever-changing suits. And it seems that as long as power is always put into a male suit, we have a long way to go to see a woman in power do her own thing. And maybe that's one step towards this. Mm -hmm. Still, you have to agree that it's a very different image to put uh, on the cover of her autobiograph, autobiography as opposed to the one she chose to have as her official flotus image, the one where she's standing in front of Thomas Jefferson, a founding father and a slave owner. And I don't know what she was wearing in that. Can you tell me? She was wearing a, a black sleeveless dress okay. and pearls. Okay. So the logic of the of the book cover, of course, is she, does, she doesn't need to comment on any authorities. This is her autobiography. And it's called Becoming. So it shows her as a work in progress. The logic of Becoming as a book is that it's built as a classical autobiography. It starts with the moment where she says, I need to start writing. This is after She moved out of the White House and found herself, finds herself in a Washington, D.C. residence and said, here I am, and I still have so much to say. Then in the middle parts, we have her childhood story, her romance story, and the third, third chapter is called Becoming More. And then we have a conclusion at the end of the book in which she talks about what the next step is going to be. So she perfectly uses the genre convention of the autobiography to say, I am a self under construction. This is what I've seen so far. And there's a specific interest in the flawless years. So I'm going to tell the story of how I experienced things. And she's also looking ahead. And that is what is masterly done about this book, because she establishes her own work beyond flawless with this. It gives her a pedestal to uh, establish or continue her flotus initiatives, 
her political initiatives and her issues that she's been pressing as Flodas now that she's out of the White House. And let's dig deeper now into Michelle's becoming. As you said, and as the cover notices, and I should have known quite interestingly, there's no background image on the cover. It's really it's really Michelle focused, but she's a complicated person. And I must say, um, when you read the text, it has nothing to do with the fashion magazine. No. Nope. And I was quite delighted how rich it was how intellectually astute she is, which this, I have always known. It's interesting. So I, I don't he, even know why I would be surprised. But when I look at a cover like this, I, you know, you shouldn't judge a book by your cover. I'm at, I know I'm at fault here, but I'm trying to be reflective about it. So um, don't equate fashion with not being intelligent. Don't equate fashion beyond the realm with, with a realm that it does not have any touching point with politics. Because specifically in U.S. political culture, we see this happening all the time. Jackie did it. Hillary Clinton tried to do it, has commented on her many changing hairstyles and the difficulty of wearing so many suits. She's gone and changed her style uh, ever since she lost the election, and people have commented on that. So there's an intense interest in the appearance of the female body, which also means that there's not so much interest in the appearance of the male-suited body, because it's powerful anyway, and so, so it becomes fashion-wise invisible. Yes, I take your point, and that's why I'm happy to apologize for my misconceptions, because I always learn something more when talking to you about this stuff. Okay, but let's go back into depth into how Michelle chooses to construct her identity. And I created a big list here, and one that I didn't put in here that is now so obvious to me I feel like a fool is fashion. But obviously, as she tells her story, she constructs her identity using a number of different things. And I'm going to mention a bunch, and maybe you can just pull some out that you'd like to describe further for me. So the obvious ones, of course, are race and gender. She also strongly identifies with working class people because her father and mother were working class. She identifies herself strongly with Chicago, so geographically. Also, interestingly, disability, because her father was disabled, had MS. She identifies strongly with living with someone with a disability. Obviously, family is hugely important to her. Her marriage relationship is hugely important. Her own psychological insecurity is something she talks about a lot in the book. She also draws a lot of her identity from education and achievement and indeed from other relationships, although particularly her relationships with other women she thought were very, very important for how she constructs her identity. I will add now fashion to that. So are there any of these you want to discuss to help us understand this book a little bit more? Rather than looking at a catalog of or a list of things i'd like to speak about intersectionality or the concept that was coined by kimberly crenshaw and that talks about the systemic double or triple discrimination of people in any given system so the point here would be that not only did she start out from a position that was inferior regarding her race and her class but also her gender. So these three identity categories intersect and they gave her a difficult start. But as she talks about in Becoming, she worked hard and thus 
had access to elite universities that she wouldn't have accessed if she hadn't worked hard. So throughout the campaign, uh, when the Obamas or when Barack Obama was first running for office, there was talk of the angry um, black woman that she embodied. And there was commentary on her BA thesis that she wrote at Princeton about the logic of affirmative action, mm -hmm. where she talked about the fact that although she was part of a black elite and uh, that she had access to this Ivy League institution, she still felt that she was singled out. So despite the fact that identity politics in the 80s and 90s put people into positions that they hadn't reached otherwise, she felt that this was also kind of stigma. And this is what she negotiates throughout the entire book. What I find intriguing is how she builds her life story through hard work, through family values, and through never forgetting where you come from. And then she talks about going straight into the system, getting all the degrees, working as a lawyer, looking at Chicago from the top of her law firm, a perspective that she hadn't had before from the South Side. And then she talks about swerves. And that's what makes the story so interesting. Mm -hmm. So... Throughout the book, uh, you get the impression that the first lady persona who's speaking to us is a work in construction because she abandoned the Ivy League career and the corporate career at one point after meeting Barack Obama. And so on the one hand, she says, you have to swerve because you never know what the future holds and you have to be critical of the system. This is her little revolutionary moment, I think, where she also still critiques the institutions and you have to find your true self and, uh, you know, do work that is more meaningful to you than making big dollars. And that's where um, she starts giving back to the community, such as when she talks about bringing Southside kids to the University of Chicago campus to crossing, uh, when she talks about crossing the boundaries that are really so close, but that are socially mapped and uh, making people from one place transgress into an area where they usually had very little knowledge of. So the swerve throughout the story is important. And her swerve came when she saw, reportedly when she saw uh, Barack Obama doing social work and when she decided to be with him. So while her swerve is one that ultimately, she tells us, brought her to be Flotus and then beyond, namely the situation in which we meet her at the beginning of the autobiography, her swerve is also closely related to romance and um, to leading a successful marriage, which then again talks about values of black community, black family and concepts of partnership. That is at the same time modern, but also very romantic. So what she also does very well in the book and uh, in her first lady persona is stage a notion of heteronormative marriage, of being faithful and of building a family that is conventional. Yeah, and the first, the first black first family had to be almost more white than the other first families, which actually makes me think that the Afro-pessimists might have a point. So on the one hand, the Obamas create this heteronormative couple. On the other hand, also, we have to give it to the Obamas or to Barack Obama that one of the big su biggest successes of his administration was the legalization of gay marriage. True. 
As I was constructing this list, and I, I agree with you that we should look at the intersections of these identity categories, as I was looking at each of them individually, it occurred to me that Michelle was constructing her identity based on these different categories, but then undercutting them. So she would talk about how her identity came from being a working class kid in Chicago. But then again, she was able to uh, sort of arise out of her class and she could inhabit any class. So again, this this narrative of classes, she could talk to the queen just as well as she could talk to a guy on the streets on the south side. But I would disagree here. I think it's not a narrative of self-fashioning that is triumphant. She is very self-critical throughout and she talks about the imposter syndrome, um, a syndrome that presumably many women in power have, where there is insecurity and uncertainty as to one's station. So that is the magic of the autobiography that she lets us in to a certain degree, where she confesses that broaching the protocol and touching the queen's back was, of course, a huge scandal. But at the time, to her, it felt natural. And she also says that the queen apparently had no problem with that. <laughs> so... Um, it's a funny little episode, but mm -hmm. it tells us a lot about her own take of the office that she still looking back, she still feels the surprise and she still feels privileged about having a look at the US that hardly any other person could have had. And uh, she's still sorting through things. Mm -hmm. So I think the the difference of this autobiography to other autobiographies is maybe that she uses the logic of process and becoming throughout. It's never finished. It's never the triumphant self-assertion at the end of the day, vanquishing the situation. It's really being open and looking what else there is to find out. Well, and I think this is a good place to end for me and for us with the final question. Yeah. Do you think becoming... This autobiography is a platform that she's going to use to eventually run for president herself. I want your prediction. You can't get out of it. <laughs> I forgot my crystal ball today. Um, she said that she doesn't want to run, and I don't think she wants to. But why should she? She's already more influential than any politician can ever be. As a president, she would probably be bogged down by a Republican Congress, or at least a Republican opposition. And as she also tells us, she never was huge in politics. So she never had a big interest in politics anyways. And now that she, you know, is a global celebrity, she can easily just work on her stuff and promote the things that she wants to promote and talk to the people that she wants to talk to anytime. She doesn't need politics anymore. She has transcended it. Mm -hmm. And she is dealing with the world truly on her own terms, which is great. So thank you again, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you. I learned a lot from talking to you. I've been corrected also, which is good. White men need more correcting. I also appreciate being the first woman on your blog, so I hope I can be a trailblazer for many more to come. Well, I must admit, I do apologize for that. Unfortunately, lots of the areas of transatlantic relations have only men in the fields. It's, it's weird to see that transatlantic topics 
are defined from a perspective that is includes politics and economies. And it's also surprising to see that these are the domains where men often serve as commentators. And I wonder how the game changes if we start looking a little more broadly at politics as a cultural product and at economy as governed by cultural convictions, expectations. And I wonder where women's spot is in that. Well, you're always welcome at the American Centrum and on the Transatlanticist. Thank you again, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The Transatlanticist. If you enjoy the show, please support us by subscribing for free with iTunes, TuneIn, or your podcast provider. And please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guest or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.